God's Word to Matthew chapter 11. In some ways, potentially the high point in the whole gospel, one of them for sure, if not the highest. This is a fabulous passage, Matthew 11, 25 to 30. We welcome those visiting with us this morning as well as we continue in this sermon series. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. In our series in Matthew, we have wanted to ask this question over and over. What is Jesus really like? We know who he is. We know what he has done. But what is his heart for you and for me, for sinners And for sufferers, we've seen so far that of all the emotions describing Jesus, there is one overarching one that is the most common. Do you remember what that is? Compassion. Love is the foundation of his compassion. His compassion is expressed in that he knows your needs and he can meet them because he is God in the flesh. He feels within the depth of his being the pain and the suffering you face. He is not only compassionate, but he is near. He is so near, in fact, that even as he has ascended into heaven, on this Pentecost Sunday today, we are reminded that he sent us his spirit. He lives within you, beloved. Today we see, yet again, more dimensions of how Jesus feels for sinners and sufferers. On page 13 in your bulletin is a section that maybe you've never seen. I'm going to read from part of that. Our beliefs, the second paragraph. It says there, the second sentence, to all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, to all who will come. Jesus Christ offers you his grace and this church offers you its love. That's what we are about, beloved. That is Emmaus Road in one short paragraph. We bring 
our deepest needs to Christ. No matter how we look on the outside today, we are weary today. We are heavy laden today. And we find rest in Jesus today. First, let's look at our burdens. Jesus is speaking here to those who are heavy with struggle. Overloaded. Kids, think of a horse that is carrying too much weight or a donkey that is filled with packages traveling on the Oregon Trail a couple hundred years ago. That's us. We are weighed down. Sinclair Ferguson helps to define what these burdens are. Sometimes it can be so generic we're not sure what we're talking about. First, he says, there's the burden of our sinful condition. Not just our sins, but our condition of sin. Now you might think, well, I feel really good. I'm young, I'm in good shape, I'm healthy, everything's fine. I'm free. Think of a person who is healthy on the outside and goes to a doctor. Maybe you've had this experience. And there are tests. And they reveal, actually, you're not as healthy at all as you think. But you have a terminal disease. So it is with the law of God. We might think we are well, but the law, by the Spirit, reveals our condition of sin. Have you ever asked Jesus to forgive you a sinner? It doesn't stop there. Have you then gone on to ask, Jesus, forgive me for the specific shape, Ferguson says, that idolatry takes in my life? Because it's different for everyone that is here. I wonder today, do you carry a burden of past sin? Of secret sin, where you are so weighed down and paralyzed by it? That's the first burden. And there are sets within these. The second set of burdens, misunderstanding and misapplying the law of God. The Pharisees would add heavy loads on the shoulders of the people. They would add to the law to try to keep people from breaking the law. It never got to the heart. Here's an example, as Doriani says. Drunkenness is a sin. We all know that, don't we? But the Pharisee says... To avoid that, you must never drink alcohol. But to avoid temptation, you must never put wine in any food. And even better, to avoid even possibly being tempted, you better check on the restaurant you go to to make sure they don't put wine in food. And even better yet, don't even go to a restaurant in case they might put wine in food. You see the progression of legalism, of burdens that God has never put upon us that the Pharisees did. And we can be the same way. Another burden, trying to keep the law to save ourselves. God's law penetrates us. We can't be good enough. We can't keep God's law for a moment because our sinful condition is already guilty before God apart from Christ. What Ferguson puts his finger on here is called religiosity. David Pollison says, this is built around a show. Pastors, perhaps, are the most prone to this. How you are perceived. How you turn God into a puppet. How there's no real love or trust of God in your heart. How you pretend to be someone you're not. That's a burden, loved ones. 
The burden of our failed efforts to do better. The burden of false religion that says, I've got to keep the rules. The burden of morality that says, I've got to try harder. The burden of, I don't need a savior. The burden of thinking Christianity is just living a moral life. And then in our performance-driven legalistic hearts, we mess up because we all do, and then thinking, i got to try harder next time. I failed. There are people disappointed in me. I need to please them. The burden of overwork. The burden of perfectionism. On the other hand, the burden of laziness and apathy and giving up and not working at all. We get on the treadmill. We failed. We try harder. But Ferguson says the more we seek to do better in our own strength, the more the burden crushes on our shoulders. The greatest danger in the church or in our Christian life in any way is to try to live by the flesh and not by the Spirit of God. Where does this lead? The burden of being wiped out, burned out, cynical, empty, running on fumes, trying to live the Christian life, running up an escalator that's coming down. Have you ever tried that, kids, at the mall? If you did, the mall police, the mall cop, called you and said, hey, what are you doing? That's what this burden's like. Third, the burden of indwelling sin. And this is something we struggle with our whole life long. It's overwhelming at times. Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. The things I want to do, I I don't want to do, I do. God, have mercy on me, wretched man that I am. And fourth, the burden of life struggles in general. We often hide it from each other. Everyone here is burdened today. Burdened over your kids and their spiritual condition. Burdened over your grandkids. Burdened over your marriage. Burdened over your loneliness. Burdened over your anxieties and afflictions. Affliction means things that press down on you. Stress and pressure. Burdened over your sufferings, things that hurt. Bodily sufferings. Bodily sufferings of your loved one. Mental illness. Burdened over your fear of illness. Burdened over the church. Why is the church around the world so small, so struggling, so filled with fake pastors and elders who fall again and again into moral sin. Lord, why? Why so much infighting? Burdened over the family that you love, that you see in the husband and wife are just going at it. You hear it, you see it, they're fighting, they're shouting, their kids are full of anxiety and fear, burdened for their marriage, burdened for the friend that has cancer that might die this year, burdened over Faithful leaders in the church who have died. Burdened over your job. Job cuts are coming. Burdened over losing your job. Looking for a new job. Weary in your job. Burned out. And with all these burdens, Psalm 6 comes to mind. You lament. You don't sleep at night. 
They're churning in your head. Your mind is over and over again turning. And you wake up again burdened by exhaustion. Our hearts are restless. Sometimes to try to feed our restlessness, we turn to addictions, escapism. We try to live for our idols. Pleasure and work and sports and leisure and vacations, we just live for that. The burdens are heavy. Our education doesn't bring us rest. All the stuff we keep buying doesn't bring us rest. A husband or wife doesn't bring us rest. Climbing the corporate ladder doesn't bring us rest. Where do we take these burdens? Second, we come to Jesus. Jesus says, come all. Do you notice that? This is not limited to one person at one time. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every sinner, every sufferer, come. The invitation is free. We read Isaiah 55. You have no money. Come without any money. Drink deeply of what Christ offers. You can't buy this. That's the point of Isaiah. But you desperately need it. What's our instinct, Ferguson says? Well, I've got to earn it. I've got to do better. But we are debtors, and the wages of sin is death. So we come to Christ with our guilt, with our shame. We are made in the image of God. We ache for affirmation and praise. All our life, one person says, we knock on a door, affirm me, love me, tell me I'm okay. We work our relationships so that we can steal self-acceptance from other people, and it never works. But in the gospel, a door is opened, finally. Come to me, Jesus says, you who are trying to be good, but you're not good enough. Come to me if you're working yourself to death and trying to fix your life labor. Or if your life is weighed down by something out of your control, heavy laden, Ortland says. Come with your aches and disappointments, your shattered dreams. Come with the weight of the law on your shoulders. Come who are helpless. Come those who don't feel God loves them. Come those who feel like they've disappointed God and they're a disappointment to everyone around them. Come those who feel they don't deserve love. Come those who feel your life is falling apart. Come to Christ, third, to receive something only Jesus can give. God has written eternity on our hearts, Ecclesiastes. That means we can only be satisfied with that which is eternal. Our hearts are restless until they find rest where? In Christ. Every one of you has a soul that will never die. Jesus here quotes from Jeremiah 6. Stand at the crossroads and ask and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find what? Rest. Rest for your souls.
Some of you have names from the Bible that mom and dad named you with, and I think there is one Noah here. The word Noah, that name means rest. A world of sin and judgment. The flood of God comes. Now Christ is the greater Noah. He comes to give us rest from the fear of judgment and the wages of sin. Every time we gather on the Lord's Day, Sabbath, this is a foretaste of what is to come and a reminder of God who made the world in six days and rested the seventh. Jesus offers you rest now and perfect rest in eternity. Rest to have peace with God your Father through faith in Christ now. But sin and suffering remains. So we come on the Lord's Day and we are reminded, set your gaze on Jesus, on the city whose builder and maker is God. Don't live for this world. Don't put your life all here. Your life may be gone in a moment, mine as well. Sometimes unexpectedly. Adam and Eve were made to work and rest. Because of the fall, they never entered into this rest. They were expelled from Eden. But back in Genesis 3, God promised that the way would be opened again where? To the tree of life. Through one who would fulfill the work the first Adam failed to do. Jesus, the perfect image of the Father. Because of Christ's work, We one day by faith in him will eat of the tree of life. We will rest forever in that glorious Sabbath in eternity. Now we enter it in part. Week by week, life is not just another manic Monday coming up. We are moving closer, Sabbath by Sabbath, to the return of the Lord. We are looking forward to that great day. Jesus gives you rest. Not only by fulfilling the covenant where Adam failed and broke it, but by bearing the judgment curse of God on our sin. That's what brings our restlessness, isn't it? Our sin, our condition. So Jesus, the greater Noah, is the one in whom we find refuge from the storm of God's judgment on our sin. The gift of salvation is free, come without any money, but it comes at the cost of the suffering and death of your Savior, a great cost. At the cross, Jesus bore a kind of restlessness, Ferguson says. The burden of a broken law, your griefs and your sorrows. He died the just for the unjust to bring you to God. The burden of your sin is nailed to the cross, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, has made sin for you, that in Christ you might become the righteousness of God. He takes away your guilt. He rose from the dead. Do you know that because Jesus rose from the dead, everything will be okay, Christian? Everything, one day, will be okay. All the things we fear, it will be okay. Fourth, who comes? In Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus says, at that time. Jesus has been talking, as we saw last week, about the responses to Christ preaching the gospel. That was a heavy chapter. 
Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, preached, and most people were apathetic, hyperly critical, or horribly doubting and full of confusion. They don't want Jesus. So in response to what we just saw last week, what does Jesus do? He preaches, or speaks rather, to his Father. He says, I thank you, Father. That's an incredible passage. He keeps on pleading, inviting sinners who have rejected him to come. Won't you rest in me? He says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden this from the wise. Who are the wise? Those who are wise in their own eyes. We saw that in Proverbs 3. Those who think they don't need a Savior. Those in his day, Jesus' day, who said, well, we know God. We don't need Jesus. Anyone who is self-sufficient. The gospel is hidden from them. It's foolish to them. It's a waste of time to them. It's worthless to them. But it's revealed literally to children or infants, it says. The difference is not between adults and kids, but between those who say they are wise in themselves and those who say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee who lifts up his eyes to heaven and boasts and the tax collector who repents. The proud in heart and the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God reverses everything. But because the world has fallen, it's a Romans 1 world, it is upside down now. So the gospel comes and puts it right side up. Jesus is the king who became a servant. In his kingdom, the first are last. The last are first. Jesus is rich, he became poor. He's a king and he served. The gospel creates a new kind of community among us where we serve one another and love one another because we've first been loved by God. That doesn't make sense to the world. By God's grace, many who are noble and wise by the world's standards do believe, right? Naaman in the Old Testament. This is not saying in absolute terms this person is saved and this is not. It's telling you the reversal of the values in Christ's kingdom. God reveals and conceals according to his good pleasure, according to his sovereign election. Among the all who are invited, God draws many to himself, the elect. They come to faith in Christ. All that the Father has given me, Jesus says, will come to me. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation? Have you come to Jesus? Are you resting in him? In one sense, we come to him every day, continually resting in him. Because by nature, our sinful condition and our anxieties say, God can't love me. He must cast me out. I've sinned today. Jesus must be tired of me. All sorts of other people say they're tired of me. Maybe Jesus is tired of me too. No, loved ones, he's not. He's approachable, not just despite your sin, but in your sin. It's your burden that qualifies you to come near to him. Your burden doesn't keep you away. 
Maybe it's your sufferings that make you question the heart of Jesus for you. Pain, years of pain, numbness. And you think, I've been cast out. If God loved me, I wouldn't suffer this much. But the gospel says, Ortland, quoting him, it is not what life brings to us, but to whom we belong that determines Christ's love for you. The only thing required to enjoy the love of Christ is to ask him to take you in. He doesn't say come with enough repentance. Come by redoubling your efforts. He says come as you are. If you're not coming, what is preventing you? Many are so busy. Life is full, sometimes full of all sorts of good gifts. But we don't want to let those good gifts take away from the best gift, God himself. Is family or sports or money or jobs or relationships preventing you from coming to Christ? What will happen if you refuse this invitation? The answer is you will not taste Christ's banquet. You can gain the whole world, everything, and lose our soul. If we say to live is Christ, to die is gain. If anything else is in that spot, to live is. To die is total loss. It is eternity under the condemnation of God's just judgment and wrath in hell. Do you feel your need for Jesus today? Do you know the weight of your sinful condition, the holiness of God in his law, and our need to be reconciled to a holy God, which comes by faith in Christ? Who then is the Jesus you come to? Ferguson asks, how can I know that I can trust Jesus with everything? Jesus is different than anyone else who has ever lived. We trust him, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, because of who he is. All things have been given to him by the Father. He has all authority and power. The relationship between the Father and Son is of intimate love and unity for all eternity. He is the Son of God. And he is claiming that that is a unique relationship he has with his Father. So if you want to know God, which is what we've been made for, how do we know God? By faith in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, he says, except through him. The Father is given to the Son. His truth to reveal those whom the Son chooses, this truth of salvation. You trust him because of who he is. And you trust him because of his heart toward you, Christian. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets you peer into his heart, Spurgeon says. What does it say his heart is? Not austere, not demanding, not harsh, gentle and lowly. The world hates that. 
But when we understand the pride of our hearts, our burden, this is the best news possible. You can trust Jesus. We know in our life we don't really trust someone who isn't gentle and lowly in heart, do we? We struggle. Trust needs to be rebuilt. They come at us. They fake repent. But you can tell Jesus absolutely everything. That's what drew people to Christ in the Gospels. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the blind man. They knew they could trust this man. He understands me. He knows me better than I know myself. He can bear my burden. In Christ's heart, I see the heart of the Father to me. He's gentle. It's the word in the Beatitude for meek. The humble one coming on a donkey. It's the word for a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter talks about, for Christian wives. Same word. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not up and down. You don't know what you're going to get. He's not easily put out. He's not frustrated or exasperated with you. He's not going to strike you down. He is the most understanding person in the universe. His natural posture is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That is his heart to you, gentle and lowly. He's accessible. That's the picture. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to try in yourself to please him by your strength. He is approachable in your sin. No amount of sin can keep you from him. His heart is drawn to you in your sickness. He doesn't snub you. The most haunted pockets of your failure in your guilt and your past, maybe things that people have done to you that make you think you're dirty. No, bring it to Christ. The deepest level of God's heart is one of mercy to you. He delights in this, weary Christian. Judgment is his strange work, Isaiah 28. Mercy is his natural work. Maybe your greatest sin is that you are condemning yourself. You are hard on yourself. You are beating up yourself. And you're turning from God in it. Jesus says, don't do that. Bring it to me. Let me show you afresh how gentle I am to the most wayward of sinners. As you come, remember, whoever comes, he will never cast out. Psalm 63, 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You say, my grip on Jesus is weak. Yeah. Like a two-year-old walking through a raging storm on a beach. How does that two-year-old hold on? Because his mom and dad hold on to him. So it is with you, Christian, in the storm. God's grip on you never falters. The atoning work of the Son, decreed by the Father, applied by the Spirit, says you are safe eternally. This is not just the decree of God, it is the delight of heaven. It is the heart of Christ that never overreacts or lashes out, never excuses. Here's how Orland puts it. 
It's one thing to know about love, but do you feel loved by God today? Do you feel that Christ's heart is lavish to you in your tired, weary struggle? How do we respond finally? What is Jesus' yoke like? It isn't take Jesus' yoke on you and then come. We don't turn the gospel on its head. It is come to Christ, find rest, and then take his yoke on you. Ferguson again, it's misleading to say God accepts us the way we are. He doesn't. He accepts us despite the way we are. He receives you in Christ for Christ's sake. And he doesn't leave you and me the way we are, thanks be to God. He transforms you to be like his son more and more. Jesus' yoke is not like the Pharisees where they are adding burdens. It's not legalism, nor is it escapism or antinomianism. He says, I will give you rest. Then he doesn't tell you, go find a lazy boy and just sleep the rest of your life. He doesn't say, take up my mattress. What does he say? Take up, my yoke is on you. He says elsewhere, take up your cross and follow me. The yoke means work. What yoke is comfortable? The idea is on itself crazy. Yokes aren't comfortable by themselves, are they? This is profound. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and escape from reality. He says, come to me and I will give you grace to endure the suffering that awaits. Don't distance yourself when trouble comes by escapism. But we seek the to know that the Lord is with us in the trouble. You come to know Christ as a stronghold, a shelter, a shade. You come to know that Jesus' mercies are tailor-made for you today. For your trouble, for your burden, for your affliction. Take my yoke. Press on. You will find rest in me, forgiveness in me, even as you live to serve me. In Christ, we're not free to do whatever we want. We're free to love the, God, the Lord and to love his law, to live for Jesus. A non-Christian says, I don't want to be yoked to anyone. I will not submit to Christ. And do you know the number one song sung at funerals? Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I will do it my way. That's our heart apart from Christ's grace. A Christian says, Jesus has yoked himself to me. He will never leave me. I'm united to him. I want to live in gratitude to him. I'm his disciple. I want to learn from him. When we come to Christ, it changes everything, loved ones. Your perspective on who you want to marry your motivation for living, the type of person that you want to be by the grace of God. Help me. Change my heart, O oh God. First Timothy, the aim of our charge in Christ is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. When you come to Christ, which we do every day, he is sanctifying us 
He is reorienting our worship and our walk, our motive and our lifestyle. He's bringing us to genuine repentance. His grace and power is changing the root and the fruit. It means we live together as a church family in a refreshing way because we are in Christ. It means we forgive one another because we've been forgiven by the Lord. It means we grow in patience and love for those that we naturally are not inclined to love. It means we repent of our harsh, unkind words in our home, in our hearts, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. We continue to come to Christ, and the gospel refreshes us in joy and love and peace. Beloved, do you know the heart of Jesus for you? Restless sinners find rest. Thirsty sinners find their thirst quenched. Hungry fish are satisfied and feed on Jesus, the bread of life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In response,